Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, how press freedom in the UK compares to the rest of the world. Clue, it's not great. The BBC partners to sell podcast ads and why Al Jazeera's London staff are striking. All that plus life after mornings for Matthew Wright and what losing the debrief means for the industry. Plus, in the Media Quiz, we take a trip through the BBC's newly released SFX library to play What's That Sound? It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today is the Editor-in-Chief of Business Insider UK, Jim Edwards, making his media podcast debut. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, And freelance journalist Louise Ridley. Uh, Familiar to the show? Yes, thank Uh, you. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, I'm currently the special projects editor of HuffPost UK. Which sounds very high-minded, but you've just told me you're going to be live-blogging the Royal Wedding. I am, yes. That is one of my special projects. I mean, it's going to be fun, but it's going to be high-minded as well. Uh, So we're doing a live blog um, and lots of other coverage, so I'm running that. Uh, Big, exciting event. We're a big global publication as well, so we have loads of interest from our US audience. Yes. Now, how are you going to balance what the American audience want to know, Mm. which is actually, in a strange sort of way, I imagine, more into the pageantry and the tradition than the British audience. Yeah. (laughs) Who probably want something more sardonic. That's very interesting. I mean, we're aiming for kind of fun and informative, that sort of mixture. But I think, you know, everyone can watch The Wedding on TV, but we all know that when we watch... TV and things like that. We're on Twitter now, so it's that kind of idea of a companion that's um, bringing interesting stuff, but we're also going to be at parties all around the country, so we'll be sort of watching Britain, watching the Royal Wedding with a lot of fun kind of what are British people up to and going to lots of street parties, so it should be great. Jim, have you ever worked on a Royal Wedding? I don't think I have, actually. It's always no, because I've always been in either serious news or business news, <laughs> so I've never, I've never been dragged in. I have written about Business Insider UK <laughs> says the Royal Wedding is not serious news. They no, actually, we first. do a ton of that stuff, but um, I, I personally just don't do it. But, you know, we, have, we, have, we will be as obsessed with it or more I uh, was, when the day comes. I was once charged with uh, coming up with a list of fun facts about the Duke of Edinburgh for Prince Philip to pad time with during mm. one royal event on ITV. I can't even remember which one it was now. <laughs> Probably the Jubilee. I think Golden. I don't know. I've been around a while. Uh, what are you up to, Jim? Uh, I'm the editor-in-chief of the UK operation. And, um, you know, so I run, I run our office. We have about 50 people uh, over in Oldgate. Um, and uh, one of my specific roles is I'm also the international editor-in-chief. So we have 16 different country editions around the globe uh, of Business Insider. And my job is to sort of um, improve the quality of them, help them, encourage them, give them guidance on staffing and what they should cover and also um, occasionally prevent them from making mistakes. And how much of your time do you spend on curating the homepage, for example, rather than coming up with editorial stories that are going to reach out via social? Um, that is a really interesting question uh, right now because we're internally a Business Insider. We, we are actually sort of rethinking um, how our front, what, the, what is the function of our front page and how useful is it and things like that. Um, several years ago, Business Insider had a very, very long, complicated front page and we uh, ob- obsessed with it all day, every day, and would change it on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour basis. Um, however, since then, I don't know how much detail you want on this, but you know, traffic it's a comes podcast, from... traffic. Go for it. <laughs> traffic tends to come from Google and Facebook and people see news stories in their feeds and that is their real front page. The front page of any given brand is very few individuals' actual front page. People, It's not like 1996 where you would open up your computer and check your bookmarks for your favorite things. That doesn't really happen anymore. So 
we thought, you know, uh, perhaps our front page is less of a thing than it used to be. And we, we sort of, we stopped obsessing over it the way we used to. And we, we put uh, sort of fewer resources on it. We did redesign it. We, we, we've actually tried to sort of like automate as, as much of it as we possibly could. Having successfully done all that, we are, of course, now wondering perhaps the pendulum should swing back the other <laughs> way. And uh, it's, it's the same. I'll bet it's exactly the same at the Huffington Post. As soon as you finish one project, someone says, hmm, maybe it's time for a rethink on this. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and you, I think the work it's starts again. experimentation, really, isn't it? Because, yeah. because digital media is still evolving so much, even though we're so used to it. So, yeah, HuffPost, where I am, redid its homepage recently. BuzzFeed, where I was before, did that too. It's just, a, I mean, you have, thankfully, in big companies, you have whole teams who are thinking about this all the time. So obviously but it's the balance, isn't stuff. it, Louise, of kind of credibility versus, I guess, readability. You know, the stuff that people are coming to via social might be the more gossipy clickbait stuff. Mm. The stuff that you want mentioned on the Today programme as the front page of Huffington Post is a different thing. Yeah, I think that's really true. The stuff you put on the front page, you, you still have an element of of what you want to show to readers whereas now we obviously know that people will choose their favorite stories they may not be the stories you think are the most important of the day but you'll still set an agenda with the front page to some extent I think. Okay let's talk about um, well a bunch of stories that we've lumped together under the category of World Press Freedom Day because that is indeed what it is today the 3rd of May the day of recording. Uh, Britain has ranked as the worst place in Western Europe for press freedom uh, in the annual Reporters Without Borders Index. They've said essentially the UK is behind Norway, South Africa and Jamaica. Uh, if you're interested, North Korea is at the bottom of the list, below Eritrea, Turkmenistan, Syria and China. Um, you've spent years in the US. How do you yeah. think the UK approach to media differs from the US? Do we deserve to rank below them in terms of uh, press freedoms? We certainly deserve to rank low. Um, the US situation is completely different from Britain. And for I'm an American as well as a British person. And um, doing journalism in Britain is completely different from doing it in America. Um, and it's quite depressing uh, because British people don't realize how few free speech and free press freedoms they actually have. There's an enormous amount of restriction uh, around reporting on the courts and criminal justice and things like that, um, which literally prevent journalists from publishing true, accurate facts in very many cases. So but those laws are designed, aren't they, so as not to influence juries and so on? Yeah. So what's wrong many with... What them. would you change about that? What, what have they got better in America? Um, their freedom of information law is probably a little bit more robust. There are fewer exemptions to it, although it differs by administration to administration. The current administration, of course, the Trump administration, doesn't care at all about the Freedom of Information Act. Um, but uh, none, nonetheless, it's a little bit stronger. There are uh, stronger precedents for shielding your sources. There are, I mean, they have the First Amendment, which literally says the government cannot make any rules that restrict the freedom of the press. In terms of trials, yes, I totally get that the British system is devoted to preserving your rights to a fair trial and not poisoning a jury with coverage before the trial start, uh, starts. I get that. But there are also many, many cases... Uh, that are of that are really important cases to do with the public interest, to do with corruption, misuse of taxpayers' money, where ordinary people have an absolutely no idea this is going on until the information is years out of date. Because some of the some of these cases only come to trial, you know, years after they are first picked up. I mean, Louise, Jim's talking almost as if we are in North Korea there and we're being shielded <laughs> from all sorts of important information. Is it as bleak as that? I mean, you work on a lot of long form stuff where mm. you are investigating things that are going to come out in due course, do you feel like you're being held back? It's an interesting question. I think um, this study is, is pretty important, and I, I note that we haven't actually got worse, but we haven't got better. I think we ranked number 40 out of 180 um, countries in that study. The other part of it I thought was interesting in terms of why they said we rank um, that low is to do with hostility towards journalists, which is kind of, a, I guess, a vague concept, but clearly sounds very frightening, and that there was this really good example... Um, of this chap who was banned by the police from attending the Labour conference last year in Brighton. Um, yeah, this is uh, Mikhail Segalov. Yes, exactly. Possibly he, um, Michael Segalov. I'm Michael taking his foreign-sounding exactly. surname and making him sound <laughs> <You're> Russian. <laughs> That's <laughs> fake news. He might not be Russian. Exactly. <laughs> He's probably called Michael. But he, anyway, um, yeah. He's a journalist for a website called The Hut, which covers activism, but culture and things like that as well. And um, he was not allowed to attend the conference, had no idea why, eventually found out a few days before, which is that the police had said he couldn't attend because he was an extreme left-wing activist, which doesn't seem to be the case at all. Um, he's covered the conference many times. He's a member of the 
NUJ. He has no criminal record. And he said he was really, really shocked and is sort of challenging this by some sort of appeal, I think. But um, that kind of thing where we see, that was the police, but we see sort of things like football clubs banning journalists that they don't like covering their matches and stuff like that a bit more. So there is this sort of concerning atmosphere a little bit. It's hard to put your finger on on many examples, but it... It is an atmosphere that I recognise from that report, and I think it's concerning. So the difference there between Britain and America, just for comparison, is that in America it would be straight-up illegal for the police to decide which journalists can attend which meetings. But for some reason in Britain this is a normal practice, and the Labour Party, in fact, has asked the police to do security checks on their journalists. This, as an, as an American, this is rega- we regard this as insanity. But in Britain, I think we're all sort of like used to it. It's the culture. But w- um, would the equivalent, <laughs> though, in, in the States actually um, be done by the party themselves? So would the Democratic Party say who could and who couldn't come to their convention? Isn't that worse? Yeah, so the Trump is the extreme version of this because he famously created these pens for journalists and he, put all, he forced all the journalists who were covering his campaign to sort of stand at the back of meetings inside literally a metal pen, like cattle. Um, and then from the stage, he would point at them and you know, excoriate them and rail against them and get the crowd to boo them. And, and apparently, if you were a journalist on the campaign trail, this is enormously intimidating because some, some of these people carry weapons. Mm. Um, and T-shirts so advertising that. That's sort of the Trump version. But I, I, the American argument about that would be is... It's a private event, and if you're having a private party, you have a right to say who's on the who's on the who's on the guest list. There's no there's no state intervention. The local police wouldn't be deciding who gets to cover Trump and who does not. Okay, but isn't the Michael Segalov thing and even the football story that you flagged up aren't they precisely news because they're exceptions? And actually, generally speaking, I mean, I was looking at some of the criteria that Reporters Without Borders were looking at, and one of the things they mentioned for our low ranking was, for example that the Home Office, albeit this was under Amber Rudd, so maybe old news now, that the Home Office was trying to crack down on encryption via WhatsApp, um, and that, for example, if you repeatedly viewed extremist videos, you might be flagged up as a concern. Now, those are to stop terrorists, aren't they, those rules? I can't imagine in reality, if the police discovered you're a journalist conducting an investigative report, that they're actually going to say, right, you're going to be arrested. It's to stop terrorists. I mean, I, I guess it depends on, on what does happen. You'd hope that wouldn't happen. And yeah, of course, a lot of these laws, they're about surveillance for the purposes of security. But I think part of the um, Snoopers Charter has just been found to be illegal. Um, by There was a sort of appeal from Tom Watson and Liberty, which found that uh, part of... So these powers are supposed to be used for finding serious crime and criminals and terrorism, things like that, which, of course, we'd all hopefully support. But the the uh, case recently involving Liberty and, and Tom Watson essentially found that these powers are not being checked enough. So actually, even though, yes, the police could use them to find criminals, other bodies could actually use them for other purposes, and there isn't enough oversight over these powers. So that is concerning when you think about journalism and sources and things like that. So it's not the sort of intention that they'll be misused, I don't think, but it's in terms of how are we checking these powers and how could they be used. I think we've had such crazy news the last few years that we can't really not expect anything (laughs) I would say. Okay and actually on that in Malaysia uh, their new anti-fake news law has scored its first victim recently. Tell us about that. Yeah um, so there's an anti-fake news law in Malaysia I think there's ones in other countries as well um, at the moment and the first person to be convicted he's gone to prison I believe chose to went to go to prison rather than accept a fine is a Danish citizen um, who essentially said something he made in well according to the case he made false allegations about the police by saying they took a very long time to respond to some calls about a shooting of an academic he uh, pled guilty as well to this yeah one. he pled guilty to it uh, he but he essentially what he says is he made a mistake which does happen in journalism and does happen in news i don't know enough about the case to make the call of whether he did it maliciously or not but that's the key is to have laws where you're simply or if this is the case putting someone in jail because they got a piece of information wrong if they got it wrong in good faith that's very very concerning that the police just don't like that rather than correcting it as i say i'm not sure of the details of the case but it sounds concerning and i know there are big and quite reasonable sounding concerns about this just being used to essentially muzzle critics of governments and countries so um fake news is not quite the term i would use there no just you can see how this would be abused right it does look like this guy was simply very angry at the police and wrote a false report uh, in the hopes of generating some bad publicity about them. But 
The worry here would be that the law clearly gives the police the power to charge journalists if they can find anything incorrect in a story they write. Now, in journalism, everyone knows, and I hope readers know this as well, that journalism is just a, it's a first draft of history. It's a rough draft. And, and part of the reporting process is you get the best facts you can, you publish them, and then later new information emerges. And it may well, I mean, we make mistakes. You know, and, and we issue corrections and we try to be transparent about it. But you could easily see a situation in which angry police officers sort of use innocent mistakes against you to put journalists in prison. Um, so that kind of anti-fake news law, it's, it is quite worrying. OK, uh, let's talk about ads on the Beeb. It sounds scandalous, except we are talking about BBC podcast listeners outside the UK. Uh, They will soon be hearing adverts after the broadcaster announced a partnership with Acast to monetise their podcasts. Uh, If you don't know who Acast are, um, they are an ad injection and hosting company. In fact, you are listening to a podcast that is hosted by Acast right now. They're the reason why halfway through this show you'll hear that little sting that goes diddly-doo and then hear an ad uh, with Harry Hill's voice or something. Um, Jim, the BBC already carries adverts on BBC America, for example, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, So is this any different? No, it's exactly the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So why has it taken so long, do you think, for the BBC to partner with an ad company? They've got these hugely popular international shows, Desert Island Discs, Mayo and Kermode, and all that money has been untapped. I am. You're really triggering me here because oh, I love I'm to trigger. Go, this, this is one of those issues where I'm going to go all Daily Mail, um, and it's 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 because of you know I'm half American. It's not because I'm a Daily Mail reader. I don't read the Daily Mail, but the whole situation with the BBC and the role it occupies in the British media environment is, to my mind, um, really really strange. You know, we we ask people to play to pay what is essentially a poll tax. They will put you in prison, ultimately, if you don't pay the poll tax to fund the BBC. And then the government has a massive media arm which makes news and situation comedies. I mean, it is literally a Soviet-type setup. Well, and, but it, but it is at arm's length is, from the government, no, isn't it? I know. Of course it's independent, and of course the BBC does some great work, and uh, it, it's obviously value for money. I mean, that's, that's why it persists. But they're not just a mouthpiece for the government, are they're they? Not, they're not a mouthpiece for, <laughs> for the government. But the fact that they have... This massive guaranteed funding. Can you imagine how big Business Insider would be if I could force every single adult in Britain to pay 150 quid a year to fund what we do? Okay, but you're we drifting would off be topic. Massive. Why has it taken so long for the BBC to monetize podcasts? You're basically saying because they're laid back because they don't need the money because they're swimming in money. Is that what you're no, saying? No, I'm. I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. I was going off on a rant that, uh, that the BBC occupies this uh, incredibly exaggerated. A disproportionate area of the media environment, which it, it sh- if it was competing properly and had to generate its own revenues, it would never occupy all that space. So yes, basically. it's swimming in money and they should have done so, this earlier. Louise, do you agree? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm surprised they haven't done it earlier. So it, it's a logical move. So yeah, I'm, I'm not completely in agreement on the sort of Soviet extremes of the argument <laughs> there. But, um, but no, yeah, I'm surprised they haven't done it earlier. It seems logical because they monetize content outside of the UK already. I mean, I must say, actually, as I suppose you might, I can't call myself a veteran podcaster, but I might be called that in other places, um, as someone who's been doing podcasts for a long time. One thing that is a bit tricky about the ACAST model, and I know this from feedback that I've had to some of my other shows, uh, I do a men's magazine show called The Modern Man, for example, listeners have written to me who are in places like Germany and Denmark who have heard an advert inserted into the show in their own tongue and then written to me saying either, why are you patronising me? You're an English language podcast. Why have you got ads in German? Or... (laughs) Um, they've said, do you realise your feed has been sabotaged by someone who's inserting ads and making money off it? And of course, that is the ACAST model working. That's the idea. Like, wherever you are in the world, you get an ad that's relevant to you. The fact is, podcast listeners still haven't got their head around the fact that that technology exists. I think do you, you get a cut of the ad revenue? Yes, that's the whole So this deal. is a good thing, right? That's the whole... It's the model working, but it's not the model working if it's alienating listeners. I think, though, you should take that as a bit of a compliment, that people are so interested in the adverts that they're writing in to communicate with you about them. I mean, you'd think it's, you know, better than people ignoring them, I suppose. It does show it's working, but yeah, that that's... It's interesting they expect them to be in the same tongue. That's it just very might be, you know, if you think about what might have to happen in an American listener's head, you know, mm. people who are listening to NPR and the like, who choose the BBC because they're getting an English perspective, then yeah. get an American radio ad in the middle of the show. It might turn them off the show. No, I think they're used to it, though, because the BBC's cable channel in America is quite a big deal. Um, and Americans do watch an awful lot of British television. 
uh, Downton Abbey being at, at one point. All of America was obsessed with Downton Abbey at one point, and in fact, I can't remember if that was a BBC show or not. But you know, just it in wasn't. terms, it wasn't. No. But just the act of watching British people on television is very, it's very, it's very <laughs> normal in America. I would say, PBS, just in terms think, of the ACAT funding model, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, I do think the BBC should do more of these things. I think what you're describing here uh, is to do with the a rather strange, specific operation of BBC's international operations, which are commercial and try to fund themselves, as, as opposed to the BBC here in Britain, which must be free and must be delivered free to, uh, because of the, the license fee and, and the tax situation and all the rest of it. Um, but it, it is a good example of... Uh, something I was sort of talking about before, which is, although the BBC is good value for money because, you know, we pay 150 quid and we get dozens of channels and loads of programs, it's also very bad value for money in the sense that the BBC has an absolutely massive archive of fantastic shows, which most of the time we cannot see. You know, on iPlayer, shows disappear after a few, after a few days, and the BBC has, what, 60 or 70 years of amazing shows that we, that we have paid for and cannot see because we're in Britain. But so I think the BBC actually should monetize the heck out of itself on all of its content, going all the way back in the library of archives of stuff we paid for, monetize that, and let people see it and enjoy it. Let advertisers fund it if they want to, and um, we'd get to see some of it, and maybe we could cut the license fee as well. Okay, let's talk about WPP. We mentioned this last episode. Obviously, Martin Sorrell uh, stepping down. Uh, the ad firm now plans to offset their debts by selling their stake in Vice Media, uh, amongst other assets. Uh, Louise, what do you think is the strategy here? I think it's it's not surprising that you'd see WPP going in quite a different direction after Martin Sorrell leaving. It's obviously a huge moment for that company, but also for the whole of advertising. I used to work at a magazine called Campaign, which covers the ad industry, mm. and interviewing Martin Sorrell a few times was one of the most exciting but terrifying moments of my young journalism career. Did he insult you? He didn't, but he's fearsome. He's a, he's a great, yeah. great guy. I Every time him a lot, I've talked to him, he's come up with a zinger or an insult. Sharp, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that was very exciting. But um, in positive terms, both of you are saying, so neither of you yeah, are obviously yeah, the cause yeah, of the misconduct I investigation. I think you've got to... Yeah, I mean, obviously, <laughs> misconduct investigation aside, he's an admirable guy in terms of building an amazing legacy from what was a sort of plastic and wire company mm. and you know, acquiring things like MAD. It's, um, you know, whether you... I guess whether you think that's impressive or not, it's a statement and it's a sort of career that should be looked at with interest. But odd, actually, that he went around buying a lot of these things that weren't anything to do with advertising. I mean, it seems like now he's gone, their strategy is to say, eh, we don't really need those things, let's let's maximise revenue and, and get rid of our debts. Yeah, I think it's debts and things like that, and it's I think WPP had a, had a long-term strategy of not really exiting and selling stakes, so it's a big, big change. Uh, they have quite big debts, I believe, and they're a huge company, so Vice Media, I think they own 9% of that, so they're going to go ahead and do that I mean clearly it's it's a statement from the interim management you know maybe it's something people in the company wanted to do and obviously Martin Sorrell was so much in charge that now they're trying out some different stuff I think it's understandable if it continued in the same way that would be rather unexpected from um, such an influential person sort of leaving a company yeah I'd sell Vice now wouldn't you this is going to be the no, height of their no. trendy young thing no I would say Vice right now the stock which is privately held so we can't value it but the stock advice right now is really low. They've just had this massive Me Too sexual harassment scandal. Um, the it's brand is somewhat lower, tarnished. Isn't it? So because now it's at the bottom. Get you, buy, you buy at the bottom you buy and now, wait, for it to, okay. wait for it to go up. There are some really great assets inside WPP, which they're also considering selling, such as AppNexus. Um, and I do wonder and remind if... Remind us what AppNexus is. They sell ads, basically. Uh, it's they, a, a big online advertising company it's it's one of the few competitors left uh, that still has the kind of scale versus google or facebook and they're based in new york um and wpp is full of strange uh, assets like that of varying sizes the success of wpp was that martin sorrell built this massive empire that I, th I think was technically the largest advertising empire on earth and now the new management who are quite driven by the fact that the stock price has, has gone down and has been quite low for some time um they're selling off bits of it to generate cash in, and presumably in the hope that that will raise the stock. I would, I would say you screw with WPP's winning formula at your peril. There's a reason it became the biggest and the most successful. Um, yeah, the stock price is a problem, um, but selling off the crown jewels just to generate a bit of cash flow, that feels very much like short-termism. Um, 
Yeah, okay, so Martin Sorrell's obviously annoyed a great many people in his in his life and clearly has annoyed someone on the board of WPP. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you, you screw with that empire at your peril. There's a reason it was successful. And do you think they're right not to publish the findings of the misconduct investigation into him? Um, obviously, as a journalist, I desperately want them to uh, publish the findings. And um, if they don't publish the findings, actually, I would prefer it if a person inside WPP leaked those details to Business Insider. You can reach <laughs> me at jedwards at businessinsider.com. Um, it's interesting and impressive that it has not leaked so far, actually, mm. given that presumably every single board member knows about it. Mm. Several lawyers must know about it. Sorrell himself knows about it. And Sorrell famously talks to a lot of journalists, no, uh, unless it's really embarrassing and he's not talking about it. Mm. Um, but it, it's actually quite impressive that it's not leaked. Yeah. Okay. Uh, time for some of those ads served up by our friends at Acast. We'll be back after this. What's the connection between Michael Portillo and the Eurovision Song Contest? Multicoloured trousers? Questionable views on Europe? No, it's that both feature in shows finessed at Run VT Studios. The central London post-production house has 15 offline and two online editing suites, a bass-like grading theatre, a dubbing suite and a voiceover booth. It's basically everything you could possibly need as a creative being. If you're interested to see what Run VT Studios can do for you, tune in to When Eurovision Goes Horribly Wrong this Sunday at 9, or Portillo's Hidden History of Britain this Friday at 9, both on Channel 5. If you want to edit your next show, go to runvt.tv now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Time for some media news in brief now. Louise and Jim are still with me. And as Warren G would say, let's regulate. Uh, regulatory action in the past fortnight includes Matt Hancock calling in Ofcom to look at the Trinity Mirror deal to buy the Express and Star titles from Northern and Shell. Um, Louise, what do you think Matt Hancock is worried about here? It doesn't seem to me like the Daily Express is that powerful a title that it really matters who owns it, does it? No, I mean, when so Trinity Mirror, assuming this deal all goes through as it's as it's doing, uh, will own over 100 titles. I think they're rebranding and being called Reach after doing mm-hmm. this purchase. Um, I assume what Matt Hancock is worried about is the plurality issue, which has kind of become a bit of a bigger thing on the, on the horizon recently. We've seen some consolidation. Um, I think that, interestingly, I mean, they put out a statement, Trinity Mirror, saying that the titles were, you know, they'll retain their independence. And if you think something like The Mirror and then The Express... Perhaps in a weird way they look at some similar audiences, but they're very, very different politically. So you, that makes sense. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't merge them into one or anything like that. So that I don't makes see a great worry business about sense, that. doesn't it, Jim? To have two titles with such different political persuasions, I don't think there's any danger they're going to merge them. Um, no, they would they would they would be fools to merge them because they serve completely different demographics. Um, I suspect Matt Hancock is really worried about the fact that Trinity Mirror, which you know controls the Mirror, which is the left leaning tabloid will eventually sort of dilute or weaken the voice of the Express and the Tories are just worried about losing a Tory newspaper. 
Um, I think the staff at the Express are probably overjoyed to be joining Trinity because it's a proper media company run by grown-up adults who care about news and and they have some inkling of standards and ethics and and stuff like that, whereas their old owner at the Express um, was just a terrible, useless pornographer. Uh, So from that point of view, I'm I'm not worried about this at all. Um, And I'm going to disagree with you, Louise, on one thing. Actually... Um, if you look at the online numbers for both the Mirror and the Express, the Express is surprisingly strong online. Um, and, and again, the Express is, like the Mail, one of these papers that I find utterly reprehensible and I attempt to avoid them in my life. Um, but, you know, the readership is, for that stuff is really strong online. So it, it is it probably is a thriving business buried in there somewhere, which, which hopefully Trinity Mirror can, un, you know, can unpick and leverage up. You also got the new um, editor of the Express, who was grilled recently, and he's he's come along new. But he was talking about the old coverage of the Express and saying things like he thought that the coverage of Islam was very inappropriate, and he felt ashamed of it, and all these things, which was really quite a moment and very interesting. And it'd be interesting to see whether the Express therefore goes in a different direction, which I can't really see it all do because that's kind of what it does. Um, so in, you know, it's an interesting time for the Express, definitely, in terms of um, what, what will happen to it going forward under a new owner. I think it will be quite interesting. In other regulation news, Ofcom are investigating RT for impartiality. Um, do you think the Russian network is going to survive this particular grilling from Ofcom? <laughs> so it will definitely survive because it's funded directly by the Kremlin. Yeah, I mean, but it's all the British television. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, um, they're investigating to see whether it deserves its place on British television, isn't it? Whether it complies with our regulations. Under British regulation, it should not survive because it's obviously not following the broadcast requirement for balance, is it? I mean, it's just not. Um, so on that, on that sort of technical legal basis, it should not survive. Um, but again, as an American, it opens up this weird question about what does freedom of speech look like? What does a free press look like? What, what, what should be the ultimate rights that we have? And, you know, all they, all they are doing is broadcasting a TV station. You are not forced to watch it. Nobody's forced to look at it. In fact, its audience is incredibly small. They're broadcasting a viewpoint. Yeah, sure, we disagree with it. And, and, and in fact, we may disagree with it because we think some of its facts are wrong. Um, but they're not, you know, they're not committing crimes. They're not, like, spying. I can't believe I'm defending RT here, by the way. I'm obviously not defending RT. But just in, in terms of the principle of do we have a right to broadcast controversial views in Britain, um, well, it's, it, raises, it's, it raises an interesting ethics question. Okay, but isn't it specifically whether those... Because you're right, you, you kind of look at the media landscape now with this plurality of channels and online voices and everything else, and you think, is it that important that all the fringe channels are as impartial as you know, BBC and Sky News? Yeah. I understand that point, but getting the facts right is different to partiality, isn't it? You know, there is an issue about, is everything they're saying true? Yes, but do you want the government... Do you want the state to have the job of deciding what the facts are? And I'm not sure I do. I don't want a government regulator coming over to Business Insider and saying, you know, you wrote a story the other week and I disagree with it and I think your facts are wrong and therefore I'm going to impose penalties upon you. But you're not transmitting on satellite television. Does that make a difference, Louise? You know, is it right that Ofcom should be regulating over RT? Should the current laws change? Um, Sounds like a no. That's a really tough call. (laughs) I mean, I almost don't quite have an answer because it's it's interesting how differently broadcast is regulated from online for example and and press um if you think of the amount of partiality we have in our press compared to tv it is quite a shocking difference um and which is more influential though broadcast tv or the press as we know them the the tabloids Mm. and the papers or people like huffington post and business insider where we have you know we have massive audiences online the audience for Business Insider, and I know Huffington Post is very similar, our audiences are many times the size of most newspapers in this country, and certainly many times the viewership of Sky News, for instance. And yet we attach this special importance to broadcasters if, as if they are especially influential, and if they get things wrong or they're biased, that's especially dangerous. Gotten, um... the, the real action, is, frankly, is online. Why is Corbyn the leader of the Labour Party because he didn't bother with the media certainly not the broadcast media he went straight to his supporters online where he has a much bigger reach than most mainstream media titles that that we know about there's an interesting fact on this I teach um, a module in MA journalism at Birkbeck and um, one of the sort of facts I tell everyone at the beginning is that um, is to try to get them to guess when the overlap happened when most British people's news was received through online as opposed to TV 
and that switchover. You was know, it the launch date of the media podcast? It could have been. It could have coincided. <laughs> no, um, it was 2016, which is a lot more recently than you would imagine. Mm. So before 2016, TV's been in massive decline, online's been in massive rise, but the crossover point when online officially became the place where most, according to the Reuters News Institute um, study that we were looking at, when online became the most influential source or the source that most people use for news was only 2016. So it is still a recent crossover. So I think the influence of TV, especially on the older generations, is probably underestimated from us or looking at our younger audiences. But yes, that online is definitely far more influential, reaches far more people. But there is still an older audience who are watching TV a lot as their main source of news, which is interesting. Well, there's also just a trust issue, though, isn't there? Like, you know, of course I get my news first through online sources, but I do sort of wait until Hugh Edwards tells me at 10pm to be sure that it's accurate. I know what you mean, but I think that is the power of about 100 years of branding and equity. And brands and equity and how you feel about a news source inside your head, that actually turns out to be um, enormously valuable. And it's, it's one of the weird reasons why, although Business Insider and Huffington Post have these huge audiences and we're, we, you know, we're loved by our people, um, you know, in, in people including myself, you know, I still listen to the Today Show every day to see if they're setting an agenda I need to care about. Um, but oft, often it's ridiculous because the online audiences are far, far larger than those carried by the BBC on many days. OK, uh, speaking of which, actually, online brands, let's talk about The Debrief, uh, a female-focused online magazine owned by Bauer. They are the latest casualty, Louise, of what they call content consolidation. What does that mean? Uh, it means that The Debrief, which was an online-only brand uh, launched in 2014, and there's no more, so they've sort of folded it into Grazia, which obviously has a print and digital edition. The good news... Well, I think the current that, says is that's the proposal. That's the proposal, yeah. And they haven't yeah, absolutely signed right. off yes, on it yet. The proposal but, is yeah. that they'll do that. Um, it's a sad thing for online media, definitely. Uh, the good thing is that if the proposal goes ahead, there won't be any job losses. The debrief journalists will be going to work for Grazia, which is good. Um, but it's sad because... Uh, Debrief was a really exciting launch. I'm sort of a big fan of women's media and do lots of talking about women's issues needing to be covered more in the media, that kind of thing. Well, you're the right age and gender for that title when it launched. I'm, I'm so. actually probably slightly too old, actually, but thank you. <laughs> well, um, but you are now, if I'm yeah, going to be impolite. Were, when it launched, yeah, you were absolutely yeah, yeah. in their sights. Tell but, us what they did. Well, they were aiming at a really young audience, a kind of women's BuzzFeed, although the audience for BuzzFeed is also mainly female, which may explain why they kind of struggle, but I don't know. But they did loads of really fun, silly stuff about sex and gossip and stuff like that but also really good women's issues news so they did great campaigns around um, uh, sexual reproductive health stuff around renting made some proper impacts around renting laws and did some great stuff that they probably didn't really get the credit for but their audience absolutely loved them and when that news uh, broke that they were closing you had so much sadness online and uh, there's loads of young journalists who've kind of had their first big break there and that kind of thing. As I say, there's hopefully no job losses if the proposal goes ahead, which is great, but it's it's sad. More, more brands is good, and brands aiming at a particular young, kind of socially conscious audience, young women, is, is are needed. Definitely. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I have a question for Louise, if you don't mind. Mm. In the last year, honestly, how many times a week did you read the debrief? As I say, I think I might be slightly too old for it, <laughs> but um, a week. No, probably every two weeks myself, but I'm not okay. the core audience, so I don't. hopefully don't think that's a judgment okay. on it. But the stuff they were doing was really, really great and exciting, and it's just... It, I, I always find it sad when a kind of women's space online closes because issues around, you know, uh, domestic violence, around contraception, all that kind of thing, still don't get the play they should in the media that covers all kinds of issues so, so Jim, the argument is our men's spa- only spaces the Bauer business argument is they will get the cover they deserve it will just be under the brand of Grazia and that means more to more people and they can sell more ads what's wrong with that that's what management always says when it's consolidating brands to be honest it might, I mean, it might technically be true but it's not really true I mean the debrief was actually really good I was uh, a judge on a journalism awards panel recently and I won't say which one um because we haven't given the awards out yet and the debrief had uh, entered some material into the awards and uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Their Mad About the Pill series was, uh, it was, it was really, really good. And that's um, about mental health implications of contraceptive pills, yeah. Yes, yeah, it does taking the pill make you depressed and do doctors care about that kind of thing and how many women are affected by it and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, it was powerful, interesting, personal stuff. It was stuff that was not really being addressed elsewhere and uh, Louise is absolutely right. It was cool that there was a space for this particular type of journalism, uh, very focused, addressing a specific audience. Um, 
The sad thing about it is, and we have these conversations in the media all the time, um, there's a massive difference between what people say they want from the media and how they actually behave when they read and consume media. And that's why I asked Louise that very cynical question two mm. minutes ago about how often do you actually click on the debrief. Um, you know, you will you will find journalists inside editorial rooms saying, oh, we should do more of this, we should do more of that. Why are we not covering these, uh, you know, minority interest spaces? Why are we focused on this mainstream stuff the whole time? It's, you know, it's not fair. We, we should do these things. And the... Um, sad, depressing business reality of, of the answer to many of those questions is, well, if you try doing it, no one shows up to it and there's no revenue stream attached to it either, which is very, which is ultimately probably why the debrief is being folded. Well, talking about revenues, uh, unionised staff at Al Jazeera have voted overwhelmingly to take strike action on the 9th of May after four years without a pay rise. That's because Al Jazeera say that they're making funding cuts across the board and they can't afford it, basically. Uh, Louise, do you think four years is too long to wait for a pay rise? Yes, <laughs> probably. It's, uh, I can't say any of the ins and outs of this, but that sounds like a reasonable action to be taking in those circumstances. I'm sure people are very unhappy. I mean, it's, it's a kind of common story. We've seen a lot of unionising, especially across digital publications, kind of globally. So... It sounds um, sounds like a common media predicament, and cutting funds is obviously a common predicament at the moment as well. And Jim, you mentioned the tiny audience for RT earlier. Uh, yeah. Al Jazeera English, I think, is probably fairly comparable, isn't it? It gets a lot Almost of certainly microscopic. Yeah, it gets a lot of coverage. It sort of uh, fights above its means, if you see what I mean. They've Why? done some really good, worthy journalism. They've done a lot of the type of journalism that other journalists really pay attention to. They've um, uh, it's another interesting case in the sense that the journalists complain all the time, oh, there's not enough international coverage on foreign affairs. We should do more of these worthy stories about the, the global scene and stuff like that. And AJA has done a lot of work like that. And guess what? People like to read about football and soap operas <laughs> and what's happening with the royal family and Theresa May and stuff like that. News is uh, surprisingly, weirdly uh, local. I think, I think that's part of it. I also think the fact that, you know, AJA ultimately is owned and controlled by a royal family that's probably not the best structure for a media organization it's also not the best structure to plead poverty within yeah, well that too uh, you know qatar has it's the subject of this blockade in the middle east right now and their, their economy has hugely suffered and uh, presumably even uh, arabic royal families their incomes suffer from these from these kind of things so they they might be strapped for for cash around that i have i have honestly i have no idea but the unionization thing actually is really interesting. I've got here a list of all the uh, online media publications that have uh, seen unionization drives recently, and it's quite a long one. Gawker, DNA Info, Gothamist, Vice, Fusion, The Root, Salon, The Daily Beast, MTV News, Think Progress, Jacobin, The Intercept, Thrillist, and Slate. Did I say Slate twice? No. That's quite a lot. Um, and uh, some staff internally at Business Insider have raised the question, you know, should we be in a union? Would, would a union be allowed? You know, stuff like that. Um, I think conditions at Business Insider are really pretty good and that no one seriously is, would, would think of doing that at BI. Um, but it is very, very interesting to me that this, there's a new generation of people, you know, millennials for want of a better word, they are very, very interested in unionizing media. It, it may or may not be a good idea. Um, partly Why would they need a special union within BI, though, anyway? I mean, you've got the NUJ and BJ and things like that, and presumably a lot of your staff are members. The NUJ things. doesn't do anything. Have you, have you um, ever thought about joining a, a union, Louis? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I, I have an interesting story, which is that I have never joined the NUJ, not through particular uh, hostility towards it or anything, but actually because I looked when I was a student and I decided it was far too expensive, and I sort of didn't review it often enough um, in my more higher-earning days now. Um, so, no, I would definitely consider joining it. I... Interestingly, I've, there's been unionising movements at BuzzFeed, where I used to work and HuffPost now. In both cases, it's about forming a chapel within the NUJ. So it's not about setting up new union, you know, yeah. new unions as such. And it's interesting there's so much appetite for it. And these are often quite good places to work. It's, I think it's, I think my view... You well, know, good places to work until there's a budget cut from America and yeah. suddenly everyone has to lose their job. Well, exactly. It's the kind of thing of people, young people realising that digital media is exciting in terms of lots of jobs for a while but it's really unstable and that's what we've seen over the last few years it can be really tough so I think that's hit 
hit home and, and it's definitely a trend that's spreading. So I think we'll see more unionizing movements online, definitely. A long time ago when I worked at a newspaper in New Jersey, I did briefly try to start a union in my newsroom because we were paid so badly and it was entirely around pay. But the situation uh, in Britain right now is the complete opposite of that. There's almost full employment for journalists. I mean, we are desperate to hire good people and we can't, we can't get them. It, the market is extremely tight. I'm, it, it's a slight mystery to me as to why people feel they need to join a union in an industry where simply changing jobs will give you a pay rise. Um, but I think the, the, the broader issue than that is that some of these companies, and I think Vice is one of them, um, they use a vast army of freelancers who are sort of on this long-term promise, you know, oh, keep freelancing for us, you'll get a job, you know, we'll give you a job eventually. And then they don't get jobs and the freelance rates are quite low. So those people are like, well, I'm just working full-time for low pay here, so now I need a union. And, you know, they have friends and allies inside the company. Um, and it works like that. So it's, it's very much a function of if you treat the people who work for you badly, they will end up wanting union. OK, someone who's had his job for a very long time is veteran talk show host Matthew Wright, uh, who's announced he's leaving the hugely successful daytime TV show The Right Stuff after 18 years uh, at the helm. Um, Louise, The Right Stuff was very much my choice of daytime viewing when I was a student. I don't know if you shared that. I'm afraid it wasn't exactly what I've shown from the bits I've seen of it. It's it's the thinking student's choice. Um, (laughs) Jeremy Kyle. You've got to watch the the trashy things. That was the the vibe when I was a student. Uh, Why do you think he's decided to call it quits? He, um, he said it's because he wants to spend more time with his wife. I don't know if that's the case or not, but it sounds admirable if so. Um, it, you know, it's a really long time and the show does bear his name, so I wonder what is going to occur now. <laughs> so it, Well, a rename, surely. Although well, it's a pun, a so you, show, could, yeah. you could just call it the right stuff with an R, couldn't you? <laughs> I think whoever took over might want to get out of the shadow of that. Possibly. <laughs> I, I have no idea, though, but I mean, you it clearly it's a big, big move. You could <laughs> do it, and then you'd Limited be fine. recruiting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the BBC's media editor, Emil Rajan, blogged that, and he used to work on the show, blogged that the reason behind Matthew Wright leaving might be, essentially, that he wasn't enjoying it anymore because the show is now made by ITN Productions rather than Princess Productions. And that was a result of Channel 5, essentially, having farmed out the rights to produce the show to you know, the most cost-saving bidder. That's a warning that everyone could listen out for across the media, isn't it? Was there a lot of... Did they make a lot of staff changes as well? Did, when they switched, did the people not keep their jobs? Well, a, a lot of them didn't. And also, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm not on set, but I imagine, you know, the vibe would change. New people in charge. There's only so much you can do, isn't there, with a show like that? You know, you've got the same repertoire of guests and presenters, so I guess the editorial changes and, and you know, Matthew Wright haven't been there for 18 years. I yeah. thought, I'm just not enjoying this anymore. One of the strangest things, uh, it, it's particularly important in media is retaining the culture of your company or the culture of your newsroom or the culture of your production house um, and it, it does it, it is about retaining some staff but it's also about transmitting it to the new people and one of the things that almost always happens when someone makes a move like this it's a cost-cutting measure and they, they say you know oh we're cutting these jobs over here and we're moving these tasks to these other people who've not really worked on the show before or on the, the product before um, they managers just think it's just going to transmit and be seamless and, and it'll be fine because everyone knows how to make a TV show or put out a newspaper or stuff like that but when you the intangible value of many media brands and I suspect it will be the case with this show is the internal culture and traditions and the, the sort of the shorthand they use to put the show together it's, it's that stuff and if you axe that because you think that is a piece of margin you can take that's when that's when trouble starts and it's a thing we have i'll bet huffington post actually has the same problem because you have like us you have like a ton of foreign editions all over the planet and you know the 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 culture comes from headquarters it comes from the founders in in our cases in new york um and sort of transmitting that and getting the new people on board and getting to understand how we do things and what our way is that actually is the hardest part and if you get it right you will succeed. But if you get it wrong, you just end up with a, you know, a bunch of random rubbish that no one wants to look at. I've um, I talked a bit about this, actually, as you're campaigning around a whole different issue, which is things like sexism in the media and um, sexual harassment and things. And one of the things I've thought of in terms of 
culture is that it's very hard to convince a lot of journalists to sign up to a culture because sometimes journalism can be such an isolated activity in terms of, you know, you're a lone reporter, you're going out, you're almost quite competitive with all your fellow reporters. It's not a kind of we're a big family vibe in many places and, and it's a real struggle. But I think, I do think digital places are quite good at it now and there's, especially I've worked in lots of places with American headquarters, they really push the culture thing and it, and it gets there, which I think is really good. But I think it's a struggle in a lot of journalism offices where they perhaps small legacy ones and, and Fleet Street and things like that. Do they all feel like a big family with one culture? I'm not really sure they <laughs> do. So, um, yeah, I think I think digital is better at that personally than some older media. Well, I'm a partisan fan. And I should say, if you are recasting for a host, I am available. Nick at VivianClaw.com. <laughs> now, there is just time for our media quiz. Oh, no. This week we've plundered the archives of the BBC's newly released special effects database, available for free. We'll play you one of the very special effects. All you have to do is guess what it is. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer, so Louise, you will say... Louise. And Jimmy will say... Jim. Fastest voice box first, let's go. Here's clip number one. What is this? Jim. Jim. (laughs) That sounds like baby goats. It isn't, Louise. Baby sheep. It's a sheep, yes. It's a particular type of sheep. Can you guess? I don't know many kinds of sheep. Is it a black sheep? Uh, It is, in fact, a Scottish sheep. Do you know why? No. It has a Scottish accent. Uh, It does, in honour of the BBC's new digital channel for Scotland, which has been given a provisional green light by Ofcom and for which they're already recruiting journalists. This This is a very hard quiz. This is where our licence fee money is going to, sourcing Scottish accent sheep. Uh, Half a point to Louise. Here is clip number two. What's this? Jim. Jim. That is a cockerel crowing. It isn't, Jim. Peak too soon again, Louise. Would you like to steal the point from him? It sounds like something in a lot of pain, but no, I don't know what it is. No, no, Can good. I have another crack? Yeah, go on. Is that the goat? No, it is the mating cry of a young donkey. Location unknown. Wow. The mating cry? It is indeed, yes. Okay. Wow. Let's not linger. Here's clip number three. What is this? BBC Sound Effects Library, bear in mind. They're not all documentary sound effects. Jim. Jim. Is it something from Doctor Who? Yeah, I mean, I suspect it's been used in Doctor Who, but what? Uh, is it the thing that goes up and down in the TARDIS? Uh, it's a flying saucer taking off, which means with half a point, Louise, you are the winner of today's quiz. <laughs> <Wow>. Congratulations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you want more fun with FX, uh, visit bbcsfx.acropolis.org.uk. Uh, and enjoy. Uh, That is it for our show for today. My thanks to Louise Ridley and to Jim Edwards. If you dig our jam, or just feel sorry for us, you can help the Media Podcast continue to interrogate the industry. Visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select a voluntary subscription to help keep us going all year round. And of course, you can hear previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production, and until next time, bye-bye. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 